Nice to see familiar faces and some people we don't know. Please say hello after the service. My, my wife's here, Tiffany as well, and uh, Jacob. I was going to say our little boy, but he's 18 and he's big, isn't he? Yeah. And uh, Elsie there. With a, she's the one with the donkey hat on, yeah, which she wears all the time. You don't mind me saying Elsie, do you? Apart from school, where she's not allowed to, all the time. In bed, when she wakes up, when she gets home. Unbelievable. Good to see you all. Um, we're going to talk about this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 13. You might want to get it out. We're going to kind of go through it. Um, let me just pray again for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are love incarnate. And thank you that um, it's not because we've loved you, but because you first loved us. That's the gospel. Lord, we haven't loved you. And yet we're undeserving and you've come into our lives and you've changed us and turned us inside out and upside down. And we praise you for your unconditional love that's so strong, that's so powerful. And Lord, we pray that we can get a glimpse of you and uh, not just a glimpse, but trust you again and uh, fall in love with you again and see you today in your glory. And we pray that you'll help us to have soft and tender hearts to receive your word, accept your word and obey your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in February 2009, there was a front-page headline in the Times which said, Childhood ruined by Me First Society, as selfish adults damage childhood. This was a report by the Children's Society. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Good Childhood. They got a a book out of it. And um, it took two years of research, um, tens of thousands of hours of interviews, about 35,000 parents, professionals, children involved, talking to kids. And uh, it was a detailed analysis of uh, children's well-being. And it's probably the largest of its kind ever attempted in the country. And what it found is that British children are more troubled and less happy than almost any other developed country in the world. And the roots of it are complex, but what was found to be one of the major causes about this, and this is where I thought the Children's Society were quite courageous, is uh, they named it, and here's the quote, the aggressive pursuit of personal success by adults. The chief executive of the Children's Society, which carried out the inquiry, which made loads of recommendations to government and parents, said this. This landmark report is a wake-up call to all of us. In many ways, our children have never lived so well, and yet there's widespread unease that somehow their lives are fast becoming more difficult than they ought to be. Almost, this is interesting, almost all of the problems now facing young people stem from the culture of excessive individualism. That has developed in recent decades. The widespread belief, this is the definition, among adults, that the prime duty of the individual is to make the most of their own life rather than to contribute to the lives of others. It's fascinating, isn't it? The prime duty of the individual is to make the most of their own life rather than to contribute to the lives of others. Excessive individualism. So putting ourselves first, pursuing our dreams, spending our money, and in the process, impoverishing a whole generation, it's a very sobering report. Now, why do I I say that at the beginning of the sermon? Because it's incredibly relevant to us, because the letter that we've just read from this this morning was, was written to a church that was also living in a culture just like ours. Just like that. It was shaped by an identical belief of putting yourself first. And they even had a name for this excessive individualism, which we might just want to call being selfish, if we're simple about it. But they called it to Corinthianize. They even had a word for it. They were par excellence at living in this way. That was the culture that the church was like. And this culture, this excessive individualism, this selfishness, were beginning to show up in the church. 
And it was creating a sharply divided church. They were divided over their theology, their practice, their social class, their spiritual gifts. It was coming out in rivalries, broken relationships, promiscuity, arrogance, spiritual snobbery. And so Paul writes this strongly corrective letter. And you, got, you guys, as far as I understand, you've been on this, haven't you, John, for quite a little while now, yes. So you're very familiar with everything I've just said. Um, and this chapter today, he's, he's kind of going for the jugular. And um, he's addressing this issue of selfishness. And he's also presenting them with the only thing that can overcome it, replace it, counter it, usurp it, God's love. God's love in Jesus Christ. Isn't that fantastic? And he's going to ask them to imagine to live in a different way. If you look at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, 31, it's just before the chapter, so we didn't get to read it. Do you see that? He says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. He wants them to imagine a different way of living, a more excellent way, he calls it. Nothing less than to love as Jesus loves. Because that excessive individualism can actually be turned on its head because the love of God has broken into the world. If this was a Pentecostal church, I'd say, Amen. Yes, that's right, isn't it? Our prime duty, completely turned on its head, is to build others up, not ourselves. That's our prime duty. To make the most of others' lives. And it needs to start in the church. How on earth are we going to see our society changed with this report we've heard, unless it starts in the church? And so the context is probably maybe one of the most familiar passages in Scripture. It's probably one of the most famous, Psalm 23, 1 Corinthians 13. And, uh, you know, often we read this chapter, don't we, as a standalone passage and miss its context. When Paul wrote this to the church, he wasn't kind of giving them something to file away for weddings, funerals. Uh, It's not actually about romantic love. It is a good one for weddings, by the way. Don't get me wrong. It's great. You can use it. But we miss so much if we don't get the context. It's not about romantic love or friendship love. It's about agape love, God's self-giving sacrificial love. And it can sound very inspirational, especially when you you read it in a kind of King James voice. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. It's very inspirational, isn't it? Very inspirational. But far from being a a poetic inspiration, this is actually a stinging rebuke. It's actually like a slap. It's a strongly corrective chapter. What Paul, the loving pastor, is saying to them is going to rock them to the absolute core. The context of the letter is spiritual gifts. And chapter 12 has been talking about the variety of gifts in the body of Christ that God's given to build each other up. And chapter 14, which you'll go on to I think next week, is how to use these gifts properly in the church. So what they need, above all else, is to use these gifts in the context of love. And Paul's going to throw in three pastoral hand grenades, you can imagine. Roy's looking worried. I'm not going to actually throw anything at you. Like, metaphorically. Yeah. Well, it wasn't for them, but you know what I mean. Oh, it, might be, it might not be for you, you know. But um, he's going to throw three hand grenades in them. And then the, f- the first one, uh, one to three, and I know that introduction was fairly long, so don't worry. We're going to go fast. Number, first one is who they are, verses one to three. Who they are. 
Verses 4 to 7, who they are not. And then 8 to 13, the need for them to grow up in love. Or as our title's got today, love changes everything. So let's read the first three verses once more. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, I surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Before we get too down on these Corinthians, I want to say some positive things about them as well. I feel like I've been a bit down on them already, you know. I want you to imagine you've gone in the TARDIS, back to, you know, my son's smiling now. You're in the TARDIS and you've gone back to Corinth and you're going to walk around Corinth and then you're going to visit the church. What would you see? Firstly, you'd be very impressed by Corinth. It was dynamic. It was bustling. It was a city port. It was happening. It was full of the brightest and the best. It was full of the talented and gifted. It was just like Southampton. It was a highly paced, energetic, wealthy, competitive city. It was a city you went to if you you wanted to make it. And in the words of a song, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And so people who came to faith in Christ were like that. And if you visited the church and heard the stories, well, you'd seen a church that was born out of a revival five years ago. It's a young church, full of young people, growing like mad. They're eloquent, they're articulate. They're entrepreneurs, they're visionaries, they make stuff happen. They're people of great faith, great, incredible visionary leadership, great teachers, preaching brilliant sermons, there's supernatural stuff happening, healings, miracles. These people are incredibly committed. Some of them would have given their life for the church there in Corinth. This is a successful church. These guys are really spiritual. Paul's going to be really impressed. But he wasn't. He wasn't impressed at all. Because all of this was done without love. This is his first hand grenade. Bam. He's not down on the gifts. The gifts are awesome. They're given by God. And he's going to say some positive things about them. But they're not done with love. They're nothing. Here's the problem. They were convinced that they were spiritual... Because of their gifts. But the mark of spirituality is love. They were confusing spiritual gifts with spiritual maturity. The gifts of the spirit with the fruit of the spirit. So what does Paul do? Well, he takes five areas, if you look through the text, and he begins with their favoured and most highly valued gift, which they loved, which was tongues. And in chapter 14, we're going to see how they weren't using it in a loving way. They weren't concerned about the effect the gift was having on other people. They were no better than gongs and cymbals. And Paul's here talking about the pagan worship. They would whip them out in the church to drive away the demons and get attention of the gods. He's like saying, you kind of, if you come to church and you don't have love, you're kind of basically like pagans. It's just kind of changing one religion for another. Next he takes... His favoured gift. So he's not being prejudiced, that's theirs. He takes his, prophecy, that's the one he thinks is the best. And he's showing the priority of love over that. And then he takes knowledge and faith. And if you read through, he says, all knowledge, all faith. It's incredible. If you're the most gifted person in Corinth, if you've got all the superpowers, 
But you do your stuff without love, you're nothing. Paul couldn't make the point more strongly, but then he widens it even further. He goes to abilities. He thinks of the most extreme examples of personal sacrifice you can think of. What are they? Giving up all your possessions and the ultimate sacrifice, give your life away. He's saying, you can start a foundation. You can write checks. You can take a bullet for someone. You can give someone a heart or a lung. But it doesn't have value in the sight of God unless it's done without love. It's incredible. Doesn't Christianity blow our categories apart? This is what Vaughan Roberts, a vicar from Oxford, spoke about this passage. I could preach brilliant sermons. I could lead outstanding Bible studies. I could know my Bible from cover to cover and be able to give confident answers to theological questions. I could understand God's ways deeply and be able to discern his message for every individual and situation. I might be so full of faith in God's power, I could move Mont Blanc to London. And yet, even then, without love, I am nothing. Verse 1 says the loveless person produces nothing of value. Verse 2 says the loveless person is nothing of value. Verse 3 says the loveless person receives nothing of value. He's saying the spiritual gifts and the spiritual maturity, and they're different. He's saying you can love being a leader, but do you love the people you lead? You can love teaching, but do you love the people that you're teaching? There's a difference between giftedness and spiritual maturity. And some people think, I've got a gift. I'm amazing. No, humility and love and selflessness, that's the miracle. What are the gifts, after all? Different ways for us to love each other. Different ways for us to love each other. Now, I don't think I've ever given a sermon with a a quote from Vaughan Roberts, followed up by one by David Koresh. Do you remember this guy? The Waco guy? Who literally led his followers to a fiery death. They literally put themselves in the flames. Listen to a quote from him. It's quite unusual in a quote from a sermon. This is what he said. Are you really a Christian? The apostles of old used to heal the sick and raise the dead. They were spiritual men. What about you? Do you do these things today? How can these stupid churches talk about the Spirit when they don't even do what the apostles did 2,000 years ago? So they sin against the Holy Spirit. They commit the impardonable sin and they claim to be led by the Spirit when they're led by the devil. How do you know you're a Christian, he says. Well, how do you know if you've got the Spirit? Heal the sick and raise the dead. Exactly what Paul's saying in verse, his first three verses. Exactly the opposite. It's the most lethal possible mistake. You can do miracles, you can move mountains, you can raise the dead, but if you've not got any love, you're nothing. It's putting power at the centre of Christianity. It's ugly. It's putting knowledge at the centre of Christianity. It's ugly. It's putting wisdom at the centre, activism at the centre. And it's all ugly. Here's the real grenade. Think about this. Paul's saying... It's possible to do all those things and not be a Christian at all. Matthew 7, 22, 23. Remember this one? They will come and say, did I not raise the dead? Did I not cast out demons? Did I not prophesy? Did I not do healings? What would Jesus say? Away from me, I never knew you. But Judas, he did the stuff with the guys. What's the distinguishing mark of of saving faith in Christ? Regeneration. Faith in Christ results 
in love. The, the Christians in Corinth would have been absolutely flawed. They were so dazzled by outward actions and dramatic phenomena. But God looks at the heart. The Corinthians thought they'd arrived, but they were immature. They were strong in power and knowledge, but they were a church in crisis. On the outside, they looked great, but they were full of pride and jealousy. But it's important to say, as I did earlier, that he's not denigrating the gifts or discouraging their use. Praise God for prophets. Praise God for healing. But he's saying every gift must be used in love. This is what Jonathan Edwards said a very long time ago. Whatever, whatever is done or suffered, yet if the heart is withheld from God, there is nothing really given to him. And we've got to understand that this is a message for people in the church. It wasn't primarily for people who aren't yet Christians. It was for gifted Christians actively serving in ministry. That's why it's so challenging. Rather than congratulating ourselves, all the things we do for God, or looking down on people who don't serve God the way we do, or thinking that we've got it right and everybody else has got it wrong, God is calling us to do everything in love. Otherwise, we'd do it for nothing. Two quick applications, and this point is definitely the longest, don't worry. Implications for our leadership, for example. In Agape, we meet a lot of, uh, we have a lot of leadership stuff and that. And I found that often, when we're chatting, what are we looking at? The giftings or their love? Tell me about your leaders. Well, they're incredibly gifted. They're not really what I call a people person. They're a bit angular, actually. You have to tread carefully around them. I wouldn't say they're really patient or kind. They're a great preacher. Great leader. What would Paul say about that? How do we measure and evaluate the health of a church? Corinth was excelling in many areas. You can imagine Paul at the apostolic leader meeting for church planters. He's with the boys. He would have been pretty tempted, wouldn't he, to talk about Corinth. How's it going? Numbers are up. Evangelism, awesome. Signs and wonders, everywhere. Preaching is powerful, a lot going on. Very committed, very generous, very capable people, very sacrificial. How about the love relationships, you know, really, in the church? We're working on that. (laughs) Yeah. It's a topsy-turvy kingdom, isn't it? Paul's saying, we're nothing if love isn't that context. If you don't believe me, read it again. You can't get any more powerful than that. But you know, he's not finished with the Corinthians. He's got his second hand grenade. Four to seven, let's quickly read it. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Where did Paul get these 15 descriptions of love? Was he kind of, did he have like a Forrest Gump moment? Love is like a, was it life or love? Life is like a box of chocolate. You know, he's thinking, oh, I'll put some nice things down. People will be doing this in a wedding in 2,000 years. (laughs) Did he pull them out of thin air? No, again, the context is absolutely crucial. If you look carefully and you read 1 Corinthians, the whole chapter, nearly every single one of these words has been used for him to address the Corinthian church. When they would have heard this for the first time, they would have squirmed and winced because they'd failed at every point. Love is patient and kind. Yet they were so impatient, 
they couldn't even be bothered to wait for the less affluent members of the church to arrive before they tucked into the mills. Their hospitality was appalling, and they were simply unaware of everybody else who needed help. Love doesn't envy or boast, it's not proud. But some in Corinth, they couldn't rejoice or delight in other people's successes. They boasted in their own gifts and contributions, in their favourite leader, and they paraded their knowledge. Love is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Yet the Corinthians insisted on their rights, without regard for the feelings of others. They were eating in pagan temples, despite the fact that the others in the church were scandalised by their behaviour. And far from letting bygones be bygones and quick to forgive, they nursed grudges. They were even taking other members of the congregation to court. Whereas love does not delight in evil, some in Corinth were sleeping with prostitutes. And they weren't shocked by the low level of sexual standards that were rampant in the church. Unlike the Corinthians who live for the moment, for the spectacular, for the novel, love takes the long view, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's astonishingly resilient. It's not suspicious. It doesn't gossip. It's not cynical. It believes the best in others. It gives people a second chance. They would have... How about us? It's uncomfortable reading. This list is not arbitrary. They were loveless. They were selfless. And Paul intends to show them how far they and us have fallen when we're judged against this divine standard of love. After, after this, they would have been left with the question as we are, is, isn't this the kind of love that we do want to receive? Yet, if we're honest... Isn't this the kind of love that we're unable to give? I want us to look carefully at those few verses and something you'll find very interesting. Firstly, you notice in verse 4 a dramatic shift from first person. I, I, I. Paul's very humble. I failed to love. Secondly, notice there's not one command in this chapter. This is not a checklist. The application of this sermon is not go off and try to be more loving. That's called moralism, not the gospel. No, it's, not, it's not even a command in the whole chapter. Thirdly, Paul's personifying love, isn't he? Love isn't a concept, it's a person. And then beautifully, I love it when he says, I will show you the most excellent way. Did you know at the time when this was written that Christianity was called the way? And it's the same word in John 14. Jesus said, I am the way. He's painting a picture of Christ. You know, often we want to put our names in. You have done that? Andy is loving, Andy is patient, Andy is kind. I think he's building, he's kind of going from base camp. The loving and kind thing, I think, I could probably do that. By the time you get to always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, I'm in the dust. I don't know about you. What about Jesus, if you put him in? It fits, doesn't it? I think this is Jesus. Jesus is everything I'm not. Paul is saying, he's putting his hands up. And he says he can't do it. And then he tells us about what only love can do. Paul is saying that I can't love and you can't love, but true love's to be found in Jesus. And this perfect love, everything we need, has become incarnate in Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything, I am not. He alone is love divine, all love's excelling. And that doesn't crush me. It liberates me. Because he loves me. These guys are, these guys are Christians. 
And he's calling them back to trust in the Lord. Jesus is the list. And have you ever thought about this? That Jesus did absolutely everything in love. Have you ever thought about that? Every single thing he did, he did with love. Jesus was always patient and kind. Think about his actual life on earth. How he spent all of his time improving the lot of ordinary people, making people happy, expressing love, being with people. Have you ever thought that Jesus never got irritable? Remember the times where they were exhausted and more people want to be ministered to. The disciples want to get rid of them. He's like, come on guys, let's minister. I mean, everyone can be really wonderful or really annoying if you think about them long enough. That was a joke. But Jesus loves totally. Think about the self-righteous guy in Mark 10. You know the guy who said, I've done everything, and Jesus said, give your belongings away and follow me, and he went away sad. Self-righteous people are the hardest to love, aren't they? Remember that verse in there in John, Mark 10? Little verse. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. He loves us with a fierce and loyal love that will never turn away, modelled for us ultimately on the cross with his arms nailed there. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that wonderful that God treats us like that? We don't have to hunger for this love. So Paul is saying, in order to be people of love, you've got to meet the person of love. Yeah, the standard, we can't make it. Come back to Jesus. And then thirdly, finally, he throws his third grenade towards them. 8 to 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I become a man, became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection in the mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here's the third grenade. I don't know if you see it in there. He calls them babies. Your kids. They, 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 this is the church that's made it. You're immature because... You're not people of love, however gifted you are. And it's lovely in this chapter because, do you see what has the last word? What's the last word in the chapter? I like that. Love has the last word. Rather than them being arrived, Paul says if they keep focusing on the gifts and not love, it's going to be childish to focus on ourselves. And we'll be an immature church. He wants them to grow up. Why not focus on the gifts? Well, it's obvious, really... Spiritual gifts are temporary, love is eternal. Spiritual gifts are limited, love is unlimited. Paul says when perfection comes at his return, there won't be any more need for prophecies, because we'll know God fully. There won't be any need for spiritual gifts, only faith, hope and love. And even then, faith will be absorbed into sight, and our hopes will be realised. Paul wants them to give themselves this love, because love will last forever. And that's a good investment. He wants to lift their sights to heaven 
and to Jesus, to what really lasts, what's really important. Gifts and love are in different categories altogether. They're in different leagues. A couple of applications will come to an end. First, if we try, and I've tried it, to live our ministry out of our gifts and our personalities or whatever, it won't sustain us. Only a ministry that's based on love will. Have you found that? Secondly, love is limitless. Gifts have limits. If you're a good speaker, there's going to be someone better than you. If you can give a prophecy, there's going to be someone better than you. There's going to be someone worse than you. There's going to be comparisons. But love is unlimited. Have you ever thought about this? According to Jesus, the greatest among us is a servant. Yeah? Any of us can be great. The greatest if we love people. Today is Mother's Day, I have to have a mention, don't I, John? Some, maybe mothers, you feel you had to lay aside some gifts. You had to give stuff up for a while. But you're loving your kids. The love for your children, it's the greatest thing. Gifts are all right. But the greatest is love. And for many people don't feel very gifted, you can be the greatest Because in Jesus' eyes, the greatest person is the greatest lover. He wants them to grow up. Focus on love. And then thirdly, Paul says, why? Can you do this? Because he says, I am fully known and I will be known. You are fully known and I am fully known. Think about this. One day we're going to see him face to face. Now it's fragmentary, it's unclear, it's partial. Yeah. But right now, we are fully known. How do we grow up? Know that you are known by God. And if you're known by God, you're fully loved by God. If I realised how loved I was by Jesus, how accepted, how forgiven, how blameless, how in a good place with him, do you know, I wouldn't need to be afraid as much. I wouldn't need to worry as much. I wouldn't need to be jealous as much. I wouldn't need to be impatient as much or unkind. His love changes everything, doesn't it? It's amazing. How do we grow up? We've got to experience more of his love for us through the cross, through his death, through his resurrection. He was forgiven little, loves little. But he was forgiven much, loves much. Come back to the gospel. Come back to the cross. See how much you're loved. And it melts it all away as we become people who really understand that we're loved. We are known by him. We are known by him. And lastly, love is the final word. Even faith and hope are scaffolding. Our suffering isn't the last word. Our failure isn't the last word. His love is the last word. And if people are eternal and love is eternal, then Paul's saying, in the church, let's not fight each other. Let's fight for love. Let's fight for love. Because we're going to be there forever if we start with everybody else. That's challenging, isn't it? All the Christians will be there together forever. Let's start loving each other. Let's start loving each other. Jesus is the incarnate of the love of God. Paul is saying to them, this is who you are, you haven't loved. And then he says, this is the one who has loved. And he invites us to grow up by dwelling and knowing and living in, as a community, the love of Jesus. Verse 13, let's finish. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen.